Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and today on the show, we're discussing endometriosis. Joining me today is Dr. Rebecca Flick, who is Division Chief, Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, Lillian Hannah Baldwin, Endowed Chair in Obstetrics and Gynecology and Medical Director, University Hospitals Fertility Center. Welcome, Dr. Flick. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Also joining us is Dr. Zarak Khan, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Chair of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, and a consultant, Minimally Invasive Gynecological Surgery at the Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Khan, to ASRM Today. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. So with both of you, I I wanted to open sort of in a softball kind of way, and I open this question to both of you. What makes endometriosis so interesting to you? Why, Why make it a focus of study? You know, I would just say when I'm in the office, when I'm in the operating room and you're looking at all these different ways that endometriosis can present, all of the effects that it can have on women, you know, their lives, what they're able to do and be and become. Um, it just, it always occurs to me, this is one of the biggest puzzles of modern gynecology and women's health. You know, endometriosis was first described over a hundred years ago. Um, and there's still the, we just don't know so much that we don't know about the disease. There's really no cure for it. And we haven't found satisfactory surgical or medical therapies for it. I, I think you know, the reality is that endometriosis is just such a mystery. And I think it will keep me fascinated for the rest of my career. Um, So I I guess in answer to your question, it probably started over 20 years ago when I developed an interest in in treating women and in women's health. Um, And you you can't do that without thinking about endometriosis. I agree. And I echo uh, Dr. Flick's thoughts, especially the word that she uses. It's a puzzle. It's a mystery or an enigma. And the disease process in itself, though, very little understood is interesting in itself. I mean, you can have the same disease process in two women in parallel, one being in excruciating pain and one having no pain at all. You can have extensive diseases in one woman and uh, without any symptoms, whereas a spot of disease with excruciating pain in another female. You can have infertility or not, and you can have endo pretty much for those of us who have done it for, for some time, see it in any location um, in extra public sites. Um, And what makes it interesting um, and actually worth studying for me personally is really the the disease burden or impact it has on a patient's daily life. Um, You know, I always, one of the first things that I teach my trainees as well is walking into a a room uh, in a patient that's been in chronic pelvic pain for 20 plus years, there's a certain skill set that you have to sort of approach that with. And the first one is empathy really going in and validation of their symptoms because they don't have any physical manifestations of that disease. It's all, it's all abstract. It's all pain uh, and primarily an infertility too in our world. But really, I think that the impact that it has on women and the little work that we do of the little that we understand and the difference that it makes in people's lives makes it all, all, all the worthwhile. Yeah, I, I, I want to second that. And I feel like, and maybe this is too political, but, you know, because this is a women's disease, I think that at times it doesn't get the research and the funding that we need to unlock some of these mysteries about it. You know, I, I often wonder if this was a men's disease, would we be a, a little bit farther along in our understanding and our therapeutics? I'm so glad you mentioned that, Dr. Flick. That's one of the running jokes. We try to keep the, you know, the environment light in our clinic since it's a pretty heavy clinic with pain and infertility. 
one of the running jokes is if this was a man's disease, we would have a cure by now. And so we say that joking, obviously, but you know, I mean, I completely echo your thoughts on really the lack of understanding and the, you know, the very the difficult situation of trying to study a lot of women's healthcare diseases, but specifically endometriosis, even though it's a very common disease, um, it's fairly treated as an orphan diagnosis. Yeah. Well, and it's funny too, because you hear people say, oh, this is a, a silent disease in some ways. And certainly, you know, we find it in some silent presentations and fertility patients, but this is by no means a silent disease, you know, and I, I think if we take into account, you know, the public impact, the societal impact and what it does for women day to day. I mean, some of the figures are that it's like a $50 billion drain on women in society. When you take into account the direct and indirect losses, loss of productivity and personal satisfaction. I mean, this is, this is a massive impact. Well, let me ask you both then, since it's a, you use this word puzzle, puzzle, it's a, it's, a, it's a puzzle, it's an enigma. There's just so many unanswered questions about it. Can it be then considered a systemic disease? And if so, what, what are some indications of that? Well, I think of it, honestly, as a systemic disease. Best to our knowledge, I think the pathophysiology or the different sort of theories behind it is sort of a lack of immune response in a patient to these implants of endometrium that either shed uh, into the peritoneal cavity or either are spread through blood or lymphatics. It really depends on what sort of theory one believes in the most. Uh, But it all comes down to sort of the immune response of the individual host to that ectopic tissue or abnormal tissue. And I'm sure Dr. Flick can attest to this too, but time and time again, we see patients with sort of generalized vague symptoms that patients have themselves sort of named in their own terminology, which is so interesting to see. So the word endobelly comes across quite a bit, and there's nothing in the medical literature about endobelly, right? But yet, if you ask a patient with uh, significant endometriosis, they know all about endobelly. How does endometriosis affect your entire GI system? How do you have just chronic nausea and bloating, dyspepsia? How do patients, about 30% of patients with endometriosis that I see, and interestingly, early stage disease, this is not the advanced disease, but early stage disease, people have chronic fatigue syndrome, have fibromyalgia, have body joints, aches and pains. And then surgically, as Dr. Flick and I both are primarily sort of endosurgeons, Surgically, we see this disease sort of spread into weird and wacky places. So uh, if, you've, if you've seen this, you know it. We've, I've seen monthly nosebleeds. I've seen monthly seizures with endo in the brain. I've seen a monthly red eye with endo in the sclera. Uh, we see catamenial pneumothoraces. So we're pretty naive if we say endometriosis is a, pelvis, uh, is a pelvic sort of bound disease, because I do think that there's some significant sort of systemic things that we see in patients with endometriosis. Um, and I'm sure Dr. Flick can attest to some of those too. Yeah, no, thanks, Dr. Khan. And I, I completely agree. I think one, one of my first publications as a fellow was a case report of a postmenopausal woman who had endometriosis growing into her inferior vena cava. And we had to resect that, obviously not me um, doing, doing that, but, uh, but it was just fascinating. And it really opened my eyes to all of the different places we can find it in the body. And so, I, yeah, I think Dr. Khan and I would probably both agree. And, and most of us that do endo would, would agree that, you know, this is clearly a systemic disease. And, you know, we really don't know what is the etiology and what is the mechanism, but, you know, there've been multiple 
immune and inflammatory mechanisms that have been proposed. And, you know, Hugh Taylor wrote a really great article about this in The Lancet a year ago that described very beautifully all of the different effects that endometriosis can have around the body. And I think there's reasonably good data and interesting data that it can affect liver metabolism. You know, it can lead to overall different patterns of gene expression um, and systemic inflammation. I think there are even some studies um, that show within the CNS, you know, you can get increases in the genes that underlie maybe some pain sensitization syndromes, which, you know, all of us recognize when we're treating endometriosis in our clinics is a big part of the chronic pain that's associated with the disease. Um, And then just like Dr. Khan said with endo belly. I mean, I think there is that endo brain fog, chronic fatigue. And it's fascinating to think that that's not just necessarily, you know, from a woman having a difficult time with a debilitating disease that might that might actually be related to differences in gene expression um, that result from this systemic process. So it's fascinating. We don't know everything. But I do think that that many of us in this field consider this a systemic disease at this point. And I think, Dr. Flick, what makes it so interesting is, right, I mean, we're taught in, in medicine that there's a genotype and a phenotype of a disease, right? I mean, we, we are uh, sort of programmed to make things connect and sort of make logic out of a situation. But sort of this disease process, in sort of my humble opinion, sort of defies all that logic, right? I mean, you can't make things make sense. You can't connect A to B necessarily. Like, how does a patient with just two spots of minimal stage endometriosis being excruciating pain? And how does one with a completely frozen pelvis and stage four disease sometimes have no pain at all? Um, To me, that is also exceedingly interesting because when we think about endo and we think about therapeutics, of course, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more, the two big things we think about is pain and fertility. But if somehow we can even crack a question to that one pain sort of uh, quite, uh, so have a solution to that. I think that there is some uh, a lot of work that can be done in in helping a lot of patients um, in just getting them pain free, even um, to just understand why some people are in pain versus others not. And I think that's such an important point that Dr. Khan was making, which is, you know, all of us learn Samson's theory when we're in medical school. And certainly there is some endometriosis that seems to follow that as its etiology. But but for every proposed etiology of endometriosis, there's a phenotype that really defies that, as you said, you know, and um, we know that it can have systemic spread, hematologist spread, you know, that there are ways that defy Samson's theory that we see in clinical practice every day. And even if you just think about the distinct pelvic phenotypes of ovarian disease, deep disease, peritoneal disease, I mean, obviously these are completely distinct and probably require different therapeutics, but but we haven't really gotten that far down the road with that. And I, I think that's absolutely needed as we move into this next step of treating the disease. And I think in the in sort of like the cellular basic sciences were like with people that I collaborate with in the lab looking at epigenetic and immunologic markers of this disease. Um, are just absolutely fascinated with it because this is sort of one of the only areas where it is an island that lies between sort of benign behaving tissue and malignancy, right? It can be very, very deeply infiltrated in a local localized area to the rectosigmoid or the bladder, like Dr. Flick said, or the ovary, but it doesn't metastasize in most cases, right? And so really, not just to an OBGYN, but also to my collaborators in immunology and in pathology, they're just fascinated by the disease process 
So it really goes to show that it, it you know, it sort of tra- it sort of stumps a lot of people across disciplines, essentially. So, so we, you know, all of these therapeutics, all, all of these theories, all of this, <laughs> this big grab bag almost uh, associated with endometriosis. I want to ask you then, what about surgical management? of endometriosis? Is, is that something that's not recommended that much? I think that's one of the trickiest parts and, and something that all clinicians struggle with, which is when and whether to offer surgery. And I think one of the, one of the dichotomies that sometimes we get into is, okay, well, do you want to treat your pain or do you want to get pregnant? And, you know, when you look at algorithms, that makes sense in a flow chart, but when you actually have a patient sitting in front of you, of course, our, our patients want both. (laughs) Um, And so those are really, I think some of the most difficult discussions that we have in the office, um, you know, around when and whether to operate. And I mean, I don't want to get too into the weeds with today's podcast, but I think that really understanding when to offer it, especially for a fertility patient and, and looking at the data to see when is it going to actually give that patient benefit in terms of pain control, in terms of spontaneous fertility, in terms of improving their outcomes with ART, you know, that's something that we all have to get really comfortable with. And there have been multiple proposed algorithms, none of which I think really adequately capture the complexities of, of what we discuss. But, you know, I would refer listeners to look at some of those and to really individualize and really listen to that patient. Because as, as Dr. Khan mentioned, it's an exercise in listening and in empathy. And I think that's what women's health is all about is, you know, options counseling and talking about, okay, surgery is going to get you here. Um, IVF is going to get you here. Medical therapy is going to get you here and figuring out what's the best fit for that individual or that couple. Totally agree. Um, I think that that's a very, very, it's an excellent approach to the disease process in itself. Like one box doesn't fit all. And I think that one of the wonderful things about sort of being a reproductive endocrinologist and a a surgeon is you can be that person that joins the two worlds for the patient. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Flick has heard this many a times as well, but you know, patients really enjoy that experience of a one-stop shop where you can sit down with them and discuss not just pain and surgery, but also sort of goals of fertility and keeping everything in the context of fertility, uh, which is most important. Um, And of course, the difficult part really, Jeff, about endometriosis, in my opinion, is that it is, and it can be an exceedingly difficult surgery. And so I think that for those of us that at least try to try to stab the beast somewhat, I've had years and years of training and we're still continuing to learn every single day. Every single case is one that I have to troubleshoot and that one, one that I'm positively anxious about till I enter the peritoneum uh, and enter the pelvis, you know, and, and it really keeps you in check and gives you some, um, you know, it, it gives you a humble dose of a healthy dose of humble pie pretty much every time you're approaching uh, the pelvis. But that's what's important. I think that training people how to sort of tackle the disease and, and, and really have a systematic approach to the surgery is going to be key as we sort of move into the future, because I still am very much of the thought process of advocacy of making sure that the right person really approaches surgery for endometriosis as it's complex. I mean, oncologic surgery is complex and um, most patients hopefully would end up with a GYN oncologist if they have some sort of a GYN malignancy. Um, And so really what we try to at least um, create awareness for also is patients trying to advocate for themselves to get to uh, the right people that have somewhat a little bit of an experience with this process because 
uh, it can be very, very challenging. And I think that's also most likely sometimes a reason for why we continue to think about therapeutics, which is excellent, and we need to continue to think about therapeutics for endometriosis in form of pharmacotherapy. But we, we, we tend to sort of um, make sure that we, we give awareness for surgery as well, because I think that there's a lot of disease sort of hitting ability in surgery that therapeutics could lack. Yeah. And, and I think Dr. Khan really strikes on some of my favorite chords, which are which are that, you know, there was a time when I think we really lost some of our legacy of advanced reproductive surgery um, within REI. And I really think that we're going through kind of a renaissance right now. I mean, there's a whole track now um, through the SRS that is really dedicated to training the next generation of reproductive surgeons who can take that patient through their IVF, but also, you know, take them through their excisional surgery for endometriosis. And, you know, I think to quote Liam Neeson, like, you know, we have a very particular set of skills. And, um, you know, I, I think that that takes a while to learn and, and be mentored and cultivated, but it's absolutely something that's within our grasp. And I think our perspective as reproductive surgeons, you know, and this is with complete respect to our, our MIGS colleagues, and I know that Dr. Khan is MIGS trained as well. You know, our surgeries are for preservation, they're for reconstruction. And, you know, as Dr. Khan also says often, you know, I have sort of my pain MIGS endometriosis surgery that I offer, and then I have my fertility endometriosis surgery that I offer. And, you know, the level of aggressiveness may be a little bit different for those two surgeries, but we can do both. And I think that REI surgeons, um, physicians can really do both. And, and I'm excited to see that falling back in the purview of reproductive surgeons. There's one other thing I would share just to kind of piggyback on what Dr. Khan was saying, which is, you know, we have had some advances in what's available to treat endometriosis from a medical perspective. And so, you know, we really saw over the last few years, the rise of oral GnRH antagonists like Generalix. And it's been a little controversial, I know, since it's been rolled out. But, you know, one of the most interesting experiences over the last few years for me was sitting on a panel before Elegolix was FDA approved, and there were payers, there were physician experts, there were patients there. And what I found afterwards was it was one of the first times that they had hosted an event like this where patient advocacy groups were staunchly against the introduction of a novel therapeutic for a disease that's debilitating for them. And I think it just really shows that women with endometriosis are looking for cures. We don't have that yet. You know, these medications are sometimes seen by these communities as a band-aid or a cover-up and, you know, almost like a Me Too movement, these women feel that their voices just haven't been heard for decades and that they haven't been part of conversations around how their diseases have been treated. And a lot of these patients in the advocacy groups expressed having undergone life-changing surgeries. And so I think their worry is that as we roll out new medications, that physicians may use that as a band-aid as opposed to, you know, allowing them to access the surgeries, which truly have change their lives by removing disease. So just a couple of thoughts on the last few years, because I have seen increasing use of medications and I'm all for the use of medications. I use them too, but I think surgery will always have a role in the treatment of endometriosis. I couldn't have said that better, Dr. Flake. I I really agree with you in the fact that, you know, that's what the beauty, Jeff, about, uh, to me personally, about endometriosis is that one size never fits all, right? We do see the patient that is 
that has extreme and excellent, amazing responses to something as simple as birth control. We're not even talking any new designer allegolics or anything. Something as simple as suppression of menses with birth control, and some people will get a new life, right? But then it's also important to understand that at least, or maybe we have a selection bias of patients, but there's a good number of patients that actually will not have any response to, to any pharmacotherapy and would have bulky disease and will have deeply infiltrating disease into the rectum and will have significant colorectal symptoms. I mean, how do you deal with that, right? I mean, you deal with that with a well-thought-out, planned, skilled surgery, and, and you deal with that in, te- in a team science approach, something that I still continue to... Um, sort of really preach to my to my trainees in the fact that we're not saying the surgery that I can do all the surgeries and I'm the best. No, we're talking about getting the right people in the room. And I tell my patients, I say, you don't want a surgeon with an ego. I don't do bowel surgery. I've never done that. I've, I've been trained on it, but I will not do it. I'll have the person that does bowel surgery and is the expert in there. But guess what? We're going to work together in the same surgery to get to your goal of having a disease-free pelvis. And so really, I think that it also crosses a lot of disciplines. Like, for example, the G1 oncologists or the colorectal surgeons find it fascinating as well because it is, again, it sort of acts like cancer, but it's not cancer in certain cases. And so, you know, it, it really is that, that acknowledgement of the fact that medications really are helpful and work in lots of circumstances but there will always be a role for surgery um, in this area. And the hard part is surgeries are exceedingly complex and difficult, uh, which may be the reason for a lot of patients not even getting the surgery that they need. Yeah, I always tell my fellows, um, endometriosis surgery is a team sport. (laughs) And I remember once when I was a medical student, someone wrote, Rebecca knows her limitations. And I was like, devastated, Um, (laughs) you know, because I thought, how could somebody write that? But I actually think bringing that humility to the operating room and knowing where your limits are, that to me is key in becoming a, a really outstanding endometriosis surgeon and finding a way to build that collaborative approach to get the best outcome for your patient. Well, we're, we're, we're out of time and I know it just flies by, doesn't it? Uh, we are just scraping the surface of this. And I apologize to you both. I, I want to have you both back on so that we can continue this discussion in the near future. Would you both come back on? Sure. Absolutely. Any day. Happy Fant- Fantastic. My guests today have been Dr. Rebecca Flicht and Dr. Zarak Khan. Please subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever you get your media. Till next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.